So we're reading from Colossians 1, 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all, to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's also pray again. Father, thank you for these words. Please bless them now to our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. If you go up to the Bluff car park, you can get a big picture, a big view of the lovely coastline. And we have a print of Hans Heysen's uh, painting that shows this big picture of the coastline. Another place, of course, to get a big picture is the uh, Crow's Nest Lookout or the Horseshoe Bay Lookout. And Cheryl and I have enjoyed a takeaway coffee recently at the Horseshoe Bay Lookout and you can take in the big view both to the left and to the right. Now in today's Bible reading that Tom read from Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're given a big picture of Jesus Christ. And the picture we're given here will help to keep us in the truth of Christ as he really is, or, and, will magnify our view of Christ if it happens to be too small. There was a book, it's an old book now, but there was a book by J.B. Phillips, I think it was, uh, who wrote it, called Your God is Too Small. In other words, your, your, God of, your view of God is not big enough. And it appears that this was the case in the church of Colossae, the church of the Colossians. They needed to get a bigger view of Jesus Christ. Those of you who are artists, and uh, I know Margaret Mackenzie is certainly one of them, very gifted artist in our company today, would know that when you step back from the canvas 
to get a glimpse of the big picture, it helps to put things into perspective. And so too, this morning, as it were, we're going to step back a bit from the details of the canvas of our lives to get a, a glimpse again of the big picture of Jesus Christ that will help to put things into perspective in our Christian lives. Now we live in a secular age, an age of pluralism, and it may well be from time to time that we Christians need to be careful that we don't allow our faith in Christ to get mixed up with other ideas, philosophies of the day, other faiths. Now the mixing of the good news of Jesus with other faiths or ideas or philosophies is known as syncretism. And it appears that this was what was happening or in danger of happening in the church to which Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians. And today's Bible reading is a small but very important part of his letter. The town of Colossae in the western part of Turkey in those days had a mixed population and so had many different religions, a bit like our world today. There was superstition, animism. There was uh, Greek and Roman gods, astrology, religions that were called mystery religions, and Judaism. And Paul knew that when the good news of Jesus is mingled either deliberately or unintentionally mingled with other faiths, then the message of Jesus Christ is no longer central or prominent. I believe perhaps a modern example of this is in the Baha'i faith, where it appears to me at any rate that Jesus is placed on a more or less equal level with certain other historical religious teachers and leaders. He's not denied, but he's not given the place that he, he really has. And it seems that the church in Colossae was being hoodwinked or misled, deceived into believing that Jesus Christ was not sufficient, that he was not enough, and he needed to be topped up, so to speak. And today I believe that if Jesus Christ is not um, understood properly, if we don't give close attention to the Jesus of the Bible, then even Christian people may be misled into thinking that he's not enough, he's insufficient for all our spiritual needs, and he needs to be topped up. It may result in Christians wavering or even losing belief in the supremacy, the preeminence, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so it may result in being placed alongside other beings or persons. Now in this letter to the Colossians, throughout the whole letter, in various ways Paul emphasises that Jesus Christ is sufficient for our spiritual needs. Just keep that in mind as we look at today's passage. 
let's take a look at the big picture. But in short, in this part of the letter, Paul teaches Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. Christ is supreme in creation and in the church and Christ is sufficient in his person and in his work. Firstly then, Christ is supreme. It appears that the Colossians failed to realise Christ's position as Lord of creation. So let's just listen again to what is taught here in verses 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's take this little bit by bit. The Son, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. There's a story about a kindergarten teacher, and she looked at a boy as he was drawing. She asked him what he was drawing, and without pausing to look up, he said, a picture of God. The teacher smiled and responded, but nobody knows what God looks like. The boy carefully put down his crayon, looked her squarely in the eye, and declared, they will when I'm finished. But Christ is the image of the invisible God. This word image comes from the Greek word icon. And as we know, an icon is a painting, it's a portrait. So if Christ is the image of God, then we can say that Christ as the Son of God is a perfect portrait of God the Father. He's not just a rough sketch. He is a perfect portrait, a photograph, if you like, of God. But of course he's even more than that because he's alive and he has all the distinguishing marks of God's character. Sometimes when I was quite a bit younger, people would look at our son Tim and say, no, oh, he's like his dad. And I might well reply, well, poor chap if he is. But actually I was pretty chuffed. And although I know he's not exactly like me, certainly not now, with six inch difference in height to begin with. But when it comes to Christ as the Son of God, we can truly say he's just like his dad. Now if we look into a mirror image, we see a... Sorry, if we look into a mirror, we see a mirror image or likeness of ourselves. And sometimes, I for one, wish I didn't. But when we look into Christ, what do we see? Well, we see a mirror image of God. And one day, 
one of Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And, and really, Philip is understanding that knowing God as Father will be sufficient. Now, when Jesus taught his disciples about God, he used the word Father, didn't he? And the word in his language was Abba. And Abba meant Dad, Daddy. Abba didn't mean Father in a remote or formal sense. It meant Dad, Daddy in a close and intimate sense. Yes, the note of respect was still there, but the loudest note was one of closeness and relationship. <coughs> what was Jesus' reply to Philip? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So when we look into Christ, what do we see? In short, we see the love of our Abba in heaven. Jesus is the only one who can reveal the fatherly heart of God. Didn't he say, no one comes to the Father except through me? And so through Jesus, you can, as it were, climb onto God's knees and call him Daddy. Through Jesus, you will find Abba's love that will satisfy the hunger of your heart. Now, not only is Christ the image of the invisible God, but Paul teaches here, he's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of or over all creation. And one of the great battles of early church history in the fourth century was fought over what this meant. It was between a man called Arius and a man called Athanasius. Now, Arius was a presbyter, a church pastor, and he was also apparently a bit of a pop song writer who wrote songs containing his views of Jesus. And his view of Jesus was that Jesus was the first creature. His view was that if you drew a line between the Creator and everything that was created. Jesus is just below the line. Now put that another way. You draw a line and above it is God and below it is everything he created. Where would you put Christ, the image of the invisible God? Above or below the line? Arius put him just below the line. He taught that Christ was the first to be created, the greatest creature. Now Athanasius realised that that view of Christ could wreck Christianity. He fought it, he stood his ground, and the outcome was a statement which we call the Nicene Creed as to who Christ really is that puts him above the line on the side of the Creator. And eventually the battle was won for the Christian Church way back then. But, incidentally, 
that battle is re-emerged in groups such as Jehovah's Witnesses, who alas still put Christ below the line. Well, Paul here describes Christ as the firstborn over all creation. Now that's not talking about sequence in time, but it's talking about status. In scripture, the term firstborn is primarily a description of someone who has the supreme place, like he inherits the father's business, supreme over all others. And when the Bible talks about Christ, the Son, being a firstborn of all creation, it's talking about status and honour, that Jesus is the heir of all things. He's supreme, he's got the supreme place. Now it's interesting that even in the Old Testament, uh, Joseph, the youngest in the family, was given a cloak with long sleeves, which apparently was the cloak given to the one who was first born. And the term firstborn could be switched from someone who was born first to someone born later, as in the case of Esau and Jacob. Although Jacob was born second, he became the firstborn. And so, firstborn is a description primarily of someone who has a supreme place rather than a phrase describing when they were born. It is a statement of status, not sequence. And so when we read Christ is the firstborn of all or over all creation, what does that mean? He goes on to elaborate what it means and he clearly puts Christ above the line. Let's listen to what we're taught. For by him all things were created. By him, all things were created. Paul doesn't say, by Christ, all other things were created. If Christ himself had been created, he could have said that, but he didn't say that. So what things were created by or through Christ? All things. Everything without exception. He elaborates, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Well, we look at each other and this is a natural world. We go out and we go for a hike along the cliffs, as Steve told me this morning, he did. But there's also a world of supernatural life that you can't see unless it's revealed. And that's part of God's creation as well. It's beyond the reach of science, but it is nonetheless real. All things are created through or by him. So it's been said, before Jesus made tables, he made trees. Before he made plows, he made planets. Before he made schools, he made the stars. All things are created by him and for him. For him, it's as if God the Father said, All this is for you, my son. But not only for him, because we who belong to Christ have been told we are joint heirs with Christ. We will finally have a share in it as well. 
He is before all things. Well, when the first thing was created, he already was. Everything came after him. It wasn't that he was the first created to be created, but when the first thing was created, he already was. And lastly, in him all things hold together, literally cohere, stick together. So you could ask yourself, what holds this universe together so that it remains a universe and not a multiverse? So that it's a cosmos and not a chaos? In him all things hold together. That is, stick together, find their proper place, if you like, he's the cement that holds all created things together. Now, atheistic scientists like Professor Richard Dawkins, who wrote that book, God Delusion, what they seek to do is explain the universe without reference to God, but how wrong they are. The whole created order in time and space owes its very existence to Christ. He is its true origin. Indeed, he sustains it. He upholds the universe by the, his word of power. He is the ultimate reason why everything has happened. And another scientist, Isaac Newton, recognised this when he wrote, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and domain of an intelligent and powerful being. So Christ is supreme in creation. But let's just bring this down to earth for a minute, so to speak. If Christ can create the whole universe, he can also do what King David once prayed for. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Now David didn't say, patch up this old life, help me to improve. He was really saying, Lord, I want an act of creation. I've got a dirty heart. Can you create in me a new heart, a clean heart, a right spirit? Praise the Lord, he does. He can do that for anyone. He can give new life to a person. He can create that new life in a person. He can create a heart that actually desires him. Now, Paul tells us elsewhere that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And that's really what becoming a Christian is, isn't it? It's not patching up the old, but it's getting a new life. It's not trying to improve the old life. It's actually taking a new life from the hand of God in Christ. So new you can talk about being born again from above. Born anew. 
Now it also appears that the Colossians failed to realise Christ's position as head of the church, so Paul teaches. And he is the head of the body, the church. So what is this church? One of the pictures of the church in the Bible is that it's the family of God. God's desire is that he has a big family in which all the members of that family are exactly like his son, so that his son Jesus has the first place in God's family. That's God's desire and goal. Jesus the son is the head of God's family and we only need one head. Not many, we have one divine head who also became human. And if he's the head of the church, it means two things in particular. He's the one who gives direction to the church and he's the one who gives dynamic to the church. Now, if we are the body of Christ, we need to hold fast to our head if we're going to have the necessary life and growth we hope for. But if the church doesn't hold fast to its head, if it takes its heart and mind away from Christ and his words, what's likely to happen to you? Human ideas, traditions, philosophies of the day will fill the vacuum. And that will be mean sterility for the church, not constant increase in renewal. But the mark of a true church is that it is Christ-centered. I love the way that Steve introduced the service this morning, giving Christ the central place in faith, hope and love. So a truly Christian church is one that does recognise and seek to increasingly recognise that Jesus Christ is the head. But not only the head of the church, he says, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now think about that. He's the first to rise from the dead, but never to die again, but he's not going to be the last to rise. He's the leader of all those, including us, who will rise. He's the author of life that gives even now new life in the spirit to those who are connected up with him. So we share the risen life of Christ and that's what the church is too, the company of those who share the risen life of Christ. So he's supreme, but he's also sufficient. In the rest of the passage, we're shown he is sufficient in his person, God with us, and in his work, God for us. Well, think about both of those. He's sufficient in his person, God with us, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So in Christ, not only do we have the concrete God, that is one we can relate to and understand, but we have the complete God. You've got the lot in Christ. When you have Jesus, you've got all of God. Later in the same letter, Paul teaches the same thing, but slightly different words. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, 
And you've come to fullness of life in him. Or as the New Living Translation puts those words, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ. Now a person might say, I've got uh, a happy family, good health, a job, what more could I need? And in effect what Paul is saying to us here, spiritually speaking, what more do you want than you haven't already got in Christ? And why he's saying that is because there were teachers saying, well, you've got to top him up, you've got to add to him, or they were subtracting from Christ. So Paul says, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness of life in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Fullness. In other words, God's total nature dwelled in Christ. And the word for dwell in the Greek apparently is to be at home permanently. If you like, God was down permanently at home in Christ. His essential being and nature dwelt permanently in Christ, his Son. Well, he is sufficient, therefore, in his person, God with us, but also in his work, God for us. So we go on to his work. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, just think a little bit about that. Now, reconciliation means to bring together two alienated parties. For example, if two people who were once together and subsequently became separated come together again, that's a reconciliation. And in the relationship between God and man, there was at first a perfect harmony. Alas, that was followed by an estrangement due to man's rebellion. And subsequently, there is in the human attitude to God there's an antagonism. Bishop Selwyn was a missionary to the Maoris of New Zealand in the early days of Queen Victoria. He once wrote home, I dwell in the midst of a people used to sin and uncontrolled from their youth. If I speak to them about murder, infanticide, Adultery and cannibalism, they laugh at me in the face and they say, these things are all right. But when I tell them that these and other things brought the Lord of glory from his eternal home to this earth and to die, then they want to hear more and by and by they acknowledge themselves as sinners. Now the Bible tells us that the cross of Christ can melt man's antagonism to God. But it also tells us that it deals with God's antagonism to sin. 
You know how Jesus was in that garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. He prayed, Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. Now, in the Bible, the word cup is used metaphorically for the cup of God's wrath. It was as if on the cross, Jesus drew into himself all the wrath of God against the sin of the world, and he drank that cup to the dregs. The cross absorbed God's antagonism towards sin. It melts it. And so it's achieved reconciliation and peace. Therefore, reconciliation is a work of God, and it is a work that has been accomplished. And so someone has said this, Reconciliation with God waits not upon human achievement, but upon human acceptance. Now Paul teaches something similar in another letter that bears on this. I'd like to read that. Yeah, he explains it very helpfully. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now God had a way to take away the enmity in his heart against our sin. That way was the cross, and therefore Paul says, we are ambassadors sent from the royal throne. This is an offer of peace with God. God need no longer reckon up the wrong things you've done. He wants to be your friend. The barrier on his side is gone at the cross. He can now overlook everything wrong we've done. He can forgive and forget it. All his anger against us for the wrongs we've done has been taken away now and you can accept his love. And so be reconciled to God. Accept the offered friendship. Friend, have you accepted the offered friendship through Jesus and the cross? If not, I believe God is calling you to do that and to make a definite decision to accept it. Now you can always talk to Pastor Duncan or Steve about this. But how could God do such a thing? God made him who had no sin, knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus was perfect. He knew no sin. He had no sin. But on that cross, God, the Father, the Holy Father, treated Jesus, his Son, as like a sinner. And Jesus faced that wrath and condemnation. God made him who had no sin to be made sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is though Jesus now says to us, I took your sin, will you have my righteousness? I took all your badness, will you have all my goodness? I took all of God's anger, will you have all of his love? I've removed the barrier that was on God's side, will you remove the barrier on your side? Will you come and believe and I'll give you my goodness? come back to the passage for today and we see him saying much the same thing. We could summarise it as from hostility to holiness. Once, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Well that's a description of the state of people before Christ gets into their life, before they get into Christ. But it is mercy, it's mercy and do we not know it? Hallelujah! And his great love. God has done something about it. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, or as another version puts it, but now by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends in order to bring you holy, pure and faultless into his presence. And that, I believe, shows the difference between the good news of Jesus and other religions. Basically, other religions tell you Make yourself good and you can become a friend of God. Get right and you can get related. Try to be good and then you can get to God. No wonder whether Muslims are trying to earn God's favour and friendship by fasting in Ramadan, pilgriming to Mecca, giving alms and praying at set times in the day. But the good news of Jesus is, but now by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends in order to bring you holy, pure and faultless into his presence. Now to put that in another way, by the cross of Christ, you are connected and cleared. God has connected you with himself and cleared you of all the charges against you for having broken his laws. Or putting it another way, by the cross of Christ we have friendship and fitness. 
He's made us his friends and fit to be his friends. So if someone were to say that, God, you shouldn't be my friend, I'm a bad person. I've done wrong things. You know what God in effect says to you? My son died on the cross for you. He's settled the account. He's paid the debt. He's recompensed the wrong. I can treat you as my friend without being immoral myself. Come on, let's be friends. Now Paul concludes with an exhortation. After saying, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He then adds, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. In other words, this is how we are to go on now, to continue to believe the good news, to stand firmly in it and not to drift away from its assurance. There's a hymn that puts it well. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Many years ago, there was a great evangelical preacher called Charles Simeon. And he wanted the gospel back in the church in Britain in his day and Christ in the middle. As an old man, he got up in the church in Cambridge, preached to a lot of young students, and he gave out his text, and it was this very passage in Colossians, that in all things, Christ might have the preeminence. And this 80-year-old man said, he must have the preeminence. He will have it. He shall have it. And friends, we have been thinking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. I'd like to end with a little illustration followed by one quotation from another part of this letter. <coughs> Can you imagine the number of words it must have taken to write the 30-volume set of the old Encyclopedia Britannica? Some of you may have that old set. It must be an awesome number. But even more amazing is that it took only 26 different letters to use. The authors didn't have to go outside of the alphabet to assemble that massive collection of knowledge. It provided them everything they needed for their one task. Now the Lord Jesus Christ said of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z, if you like. We who believe in him do not have to go outside of him for anything we need for the Christian life. 
He provides everything. He is God's everything for all situations to the end of our life. He is supreme and he is sufficient. And that being so, let's hear this exhortation of Paul later in the letter. So just as we received Christ Jesus as Lord, <coughs> continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Or as another version puts those words, since you have accepted Christ Jesus as Lord, Live in union with him. Keep your roots deep in him. Build your lives on him and become ever stronger in your faith as you are taught and be filled with thanksgiving. Putting all that very simply, don't go beyond the old, old story of Jesus and his love but go on to maturity in it and by it 